Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, like, thank you. Uh, like Mark said, my name is Matthew. I am one of the pastors here. It's just a joy to be with you, to worship the Lord, and to be able to study His Word together. And like Mark said, this morning we are beginning our series in Acts. Just to give you a bit of a recap, if you want to go ahead and start turning to the book of Acts, we'll be in chapter 1. Uh, for the last few weeks, we have uh, been studying the book of Jonah. And our subtitle for that study was Jonah, the mercy and mission of God. And what we saw in Jonah was we began to catch a a glimpse. We kind of cracked open the door to seeing God's missionary heart. And we saw that he sent Jonah to call Nineveh to repentance. And when Jonah ran the other way, we saw that God himself pursued Jonah. So God himself is a missionary God, and he sends his people on mission. And as we turn to the book of Acts, we, we get to see that, that missionary heart, what opened just a little bit, we see it blown wide open in the book of Acts. As the curtains you know, close as they come down at the end of the Gospels, they, they end with the, the Great Commission. Jesus' command to his disciples and to us to go, therefore, and to make disciples and to baptize them and to teach them everything that he has commanded us. And Acts is how the disciples responded to that Great Commission. We're going to be spending about 20 weeks, maybe more, who knows, we'll just kind of take our time and see where we end up, you know, 20 or so weeks going through the book of Acts. And it's our prayer that individually and as a church that all of us would grow in our understanding of what God is calling us to do when he calls us to go and to make disciples. So if you would, we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. If you would pray with me. Lord, by your Spirit, you have penned the words on these pages, and so... By your spirit, we ask that you would guide us. Would you lead us? Would you lead us into all truth as we study your word? Would you conform us more into the image of Jesus? We pray these things in his name. Amen. So verse 1, the book of Acts, starts out by saying, In the first book, O Theophilus. 
which if you're reading this for the first time, you say, whoa, I feel like I just kind of got thrown into the middle of something here. You know, what, what first book is this talking about? Who is Theophilus? You know, there, I feel like I'm, I'm missing some information. Well, Luke is the author of Acts. He wrote it. And if you go back and you read the introduction to Luke's gospel, he introduces the book by saying, Dear most excellent Theophilus, I have written these things that you may have an orderly account of the things that you have been taught. So Luke wrote his gospel to a man named Theophilus. And so we know that this man was either a new convert, he had, he had just come to the faith and he was still, you know, a baby believer. He was fragile in his faith. And so uh, Luke wanted to give him an orderly account of all the things that Jesus had done. Or maybe Theophilus was a skeptic. You know, maybe he was interested in Christ and in Christianity. Maybe his curiosity had been piqued. And so, you know, either as a good disciple maker or as a good evangelist, Luke was writing an orderly account of all of the things that Jesus had done so that Theophilus could see these things. So the first book is simply referring to Luke's own gospel account. And Luke ends verse 1 by saying, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And I, I think that phrase, began to do and to teach, should really grab our attention. I don't know if you're anything like me, but a lot of times when I think about, you know, kind of the shape and the activity of the New Testament, I think, okay, the Gospels, that's where Jesus is. You know, he was born, he came to the earth, he did his work, he did his miracles, he died, and he ascended at the end of the Gospels, and then, you know, he can kind of wipe his hands and his work is done. You know, at the ascension, when Christ goes into heaven, now he's in heaven, and it's like he has turned over the keys to the disciples and to the church. But I think when we read that this is what Jesus began to do and to teach, I think the implication behind that is that Jesus isn't done doing and he isn't done teaching. Yes, he began his work in the Gospels, but that work is going to continue without interruption as we move into Acts and into the rest of the New Testament. There's a really interesting moment, we'll see it in a few weeks, in Acts 9. Saul, or, or Paul, however you want to refer to him, he was on his road to Damascus, and he was going around persecuting the churches. And so he's on the road, and Jesus stops him, and Jesus has this miraculous, transforming encounter with him. And in this encounter, Jesus asks Saul a question. He says, Saul, you're going around persecuting the churches, and Jesus asks him, why are you persecuting me? doesn't say, why are you persecuting the churches? He says, why are you persecuting me? Meaning that, yes, Jesus has ascended. He resides in heaven, but he is still so active and involved here on earth, in the ministry, in the church, that Jesus can say, when you persecute the church, you are persecuting me. So yes, all of the evangelizing, all of the healing, all of the teaching, all of the discipling that we are going to see in the book of Acts, yes, the apostles get to play a part, but this is still the Acts of Jesus. The, the title of this book, at least in my Bible, I think probably in most of yours, is the Acts of the Apostles. 
I think because we know that this is just the work that Jesus began to do, the Acts is the continued work of Jesus, I think we could rename this book the Acts of Jesus Christ through the Apostles. And I think that should have a humbling effect on all of us. That as we learn about God's mission, as we learn about what he has called us to individually and what he has called us to as a church, that should be a reminder that this is not about us. These are not our acts. These are not primarily the acts of the apostles. These are the acts of Jesus. So so that's Luke's intro. He says, this is a sequel. This is the Gospel of Luke, part two. Jesus' work continued. And and in the verses two and three, he's still kind of referencing some of those things in the past that Jesus had done. And in verse three, after he had resurrected from the dead, we read that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So if you are not a believer, or if you are interested, if you're just considering the claims of Christ, I think Luke left a little nugget for you here. Maybe a little trail of breadcrumbs that he knew a skeptic might pick up on. And one of the barriers that I think a lot of people have Uh, against Christianity in terms of coming to faith is that they feel they are being called to a blind faith. They feel like they're being told, don't ask questions, don't look for any evidence. That's not the kind of faith that honors Jesus. The kind of faith that honors Jesus is totally blind. And, And yes, while scripture does call us to faith, it does not call us to that kind of blind faith. Maybe you've heard of the term apologetics. It's just a fancy term for defending the faith, for giving an explanation, for giving a defense, for giving an apology for the claims of the gospel. And and Luke is giving us a bit of an apologetic moment here. He is defending the faith using a historical evidence-based account of what Jesus has done. And Jesus did that. He appeared after his resurrection by many proofs. And so I don't think apologetics can save anyone, but what it can do is it can remove unnecessary barriers. It can smooth the way for somebody to come to faith. And so we we know that Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. Paul kind of offhandedly drops that knowledge in, in Colossians 4. And, you know, being a believer in a very scientific, very historical, very evidence-based, evidence-driven profession, I think Luke probably had to do a lot of apologetics amongst his doctor colleagues. And he said that Jesus was resurrected and that he showed this by many proofs. And so if you're an unbeliever and, and you might be thinking, you know, there's just, there's no way that a dead man can come back to life. That just doesn't happen. That, that's not believable. Did you know that Jesus appeared 10 different times after his resurrection? At least 10 different times he appeared to different people in different places in order to give a defense for the historical accuracy of his resurrection. The the first time that he appeared was to Mary and to the other women at the tomb. 
just for a little context to help us understand how scandalous and kind of how journalistically irresponsible that would be to say that women were the first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. Women did not enjoy a high status in that time. Their testimony was not acceptable in a court of law. And so if you are trying to create a believable story, you would be very, very dumb to have the first witnesses be women. The only reason you would do that is, would be as if it actually happened. It just kind of goes against the grain so much. It's a twist that you wouldn't expect that actually authenticates some very high claims. So Jesus first appeared to women, and then he first appeared to the 12 disciples. He showed up in the upper room, and he showed them the, the wounds in his hands and his feet, and he said, here, touch it. You can put your finger through my flesh. It's not makeup. You know, I, I have an actual body. And, and he ate with them. You know, to show that he, he wasn't a phantom. He wasn't some spirit floating around. He had resurrected in his body. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. He appeared to a crowd of over 500. And, you know, one or two people, yeah, they can miss see something, but I've never heard of a group of 500 people sharing a hallucination before. The only way that 500 people can have the same story is if it happened. And, and Paul wasn't afraid to name drop here. He wasn't afraid to be fact-checked. He said, if you don't believe me, go ask so-and-so. They were there. They're still alive. I think Jesus and Luke here, I think they knew there would be a lot of skeptics who would just see, I don't see any evidence that Christ is resurrected. There is plenty of evidence and so if you are an unbeliever, or if you're just struggling with the claims of Jesus about his resurrection, just, just know that the Christian faith isn't a blind faith. You don't have to leave your brain at the door to believe. One of Jesus' favorite sayings that we see throughout the gospel is, is come and see. Just, just taste and see. Just kind of dip your toe in a little bit. Start reading the claims of Jesus. Start reading the claims that the people of God make about God. See the transforming work that God is doing in their lives. Just come and see and let God do his work. So for 40 days, Jesus has been laying this apologetic groundwork. He has been giving a historical evidence-based defense for his resurrection. And he was also spending time with the disciples. He was teaching them. He was instructing them. He was trying to reorient their worldview in light of the resurrection. And he also is going to give them a command. We're going to see that command in verse 4. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And, and this strikes me as very, very odd. The disciples had just graduated from the best seminary in the world. They had just taken a 40 days advanced graduate program with the resurrected Christ. 
They had been with him for three years. They had seen all the teachings, all the miracles. They had been equipped. They had been prepared. Jesus had given them the great commission, the call to go and to make disciples. The the missionary activity was just building during these 40 days. It's like one of those toy cars that kids play with where you pull it back on the ground and the potential energy increases and as soon as you let it go, it shoots off. That's what these 40 days were like. Jesus was pulling these disciples back, teaching them, equipping them, preparing them. But before he let them go, he said, there is still one thing that you need. You can have all of this knowledge, all of this experience, all of this missionary activity, but if you don't have this one thing, all of it is going to be useless. And the one thing that you need is the Holy Spirit. At the end of his gospel in Luke 24, Jesus said to the disciples, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power. From on high. So the Spirit plays a very prominent role in the book of Acts. The Spirit is going to be mentioned 57 times in the book of Acts. So I think we could rename Acts again. This is a very loose working title. We could name it the Acts of Jesus Christ through the Apostles by the Holy Spirit. And again, in Luke 24, Jesus could have said, wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. And I I think there's a lot that we can learn about the Spirit, and I hope that we continue to learn about Him throughout the book of Acts. But instead of just saying, wait until you receive the Spirit, Jesus said, wait until you receive the power from on high. So I think the very first thing that Jesus wants us to know about the Spirit is that He is powerful. He is so powerful that the disciples shouldn't even step out of their front door unless the Spirit is with them. Charles Spurgeon, an English pastor in the 1800s, he had a training school for other young pastors, and he would do this exercise where he would take these young men and he would take them out to a graveyard. And amongst all the tombstones and amongst all the dead bodies, he would have them preach. And so a few of them would preach, and after they were done, he would say to them, Brothers, If you don't have the Spirit in your ministry, if you don't rely on the Spirit and on His power, then the people that you preach to and the people that you disciple, they are going to respond the exact same way that these dead bodies did. They won't. They are dead. And you're not that impressive. You don't have the power, you don't have the intellect, you don't have the winsomeness, you don't have the argumentative ability. You cannot raise these people to life. You cannot bring them to faith. That can only be done by the power of the Spirit. So Jesus gives the disciples an incredible promise of power. And then we see the disciples' response and we realize that not much has changed. They are still these bumbling idiots walking around asking all of the wrong questions, not understanding who Jesus is, not understanding what Jesus had called them to. Jesus had promised them power, and they responded by asking him, Oh, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
showing that they completely misunderstood the kind of power that Jesus was talking about. They interpreted this promise for power politically. And understandably, these were Jewish young men, and at that time they were under the hand, under the oppression of the Roman government. And so they knew that God had promised a deliverer that would come and liberate Israel out from under oppression. And they knew that it was Jesus. They said, all right, Jesus, you're resurrected. You're back. Let's, let's go. It's, it's time to re- lead the revolution. Are you going to bring glory back to Israel now? That they understood it in political terms. It's really just kind of the same argument they've been having all throughout the Gospels when they were arguing with one another about who would be greater in the kingdom of God. It's just the, the same story on a different day. And, and very gently, Jesus redirects their attention. He, he redirects their understanding of what kind of power he's talking about. He says, it's not for you to know times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus says, guys, forget about the political power. That is far too weak of a power. You need a power from on high. You need a heavenly power. If you are going to see people come to faith, if you are going to see the kingdom of God expand, stop looking at it through the elected officials, stop looking at it through legislation, stop looking at it through a revolution. That's all too weak. The Greek word for power here is dunamis. It's where we get our word for dynamite. Jesus is saying that this political power, it's too weak. Trying to bring people to faith and institute the kingdom of God through you know, means of uh, uh, politics, that's like trying to break into a bank by tapping on the vault with a toothpick. You need something so much more powerful, and it is offered to you through the Spirit. And so verse 8 really does function as the thesis statement for the entire book of Acts. It starts out by saying you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Spirit is what empowers you. It drives the mission. The Spirit does the work. And verse 8 also gives us an outline for the book of Acts. Acts is a very long book. It's 28 chapters long. And A lot of times when I read a very long book, it's helpful to have an outline. That way when, you know, we kind of get down into a confusing verse or passage and we kind of get down into the weeds and we think, oh, how did I get here? It's helpful to be able to have your map and say, that's where we were, that's where I'm going. That kind of helps give me a sense of place so that we can get through this tough part. So Jesus gives us an outline when he says, you will be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem. It says you're going to start locally. And we see that's how it plays out. In chapter 2, when Peter addresses, uh, he will address all who dwell in Jerusalem. In chapter 5, the disciples are going to be arrested because they have filled Jerusalem with all of their teaching. So the, so the first seven chapters of Acts, they all happen in Jerusalem. Then Jesus says, you will go beyond Jerusalem, and the the circle is going to widen a little bit. Chapters 8 through 12, we're going to see that takes place in Judea and Samaria. At the beginning of chapter 8, we read, 
There arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Isn't that just like Jesus? We could ask him, Jesus, why would you let persecution come to this thriving church? Why would you cause this church to close its doors? Why would you send these Christians out? Why would you persecute them? For the sake of mission. For the sake of seeing those who do not know him come to Christ. Why, why does God allow persecution to happen? Because even persecution can be used by God for good, to see his kingdom expand and for his glory to be made known. So chapters 8 through 12, that happens in Judea and Samaria. And by the time that we reach chapter 13, we're going to start, pick up with the church in Antioch. So we're going to see Paul and Barnabas sent off. And we're going to see Paul's first, second, and third missionary journeys. And by the time that you reach Acts 28, Paul is now in Rome. And it's not the end of the earth, but it is the, the hub, it is the center of the Roman Empire. And so from Rome, Paul is going to be able to use that as a launching point to send the gospel out to the ends of the earth. So, so that's the outline for the book of Acts. And, and just in this outline, in this table of contents, I think at this point in the Bible, this is where we see the missionary heart of God. And the missionary heart that God has given his church, that is where we see it take off. We've gotten hints of this missionary command, this missionary journey. We've gotten hints of it throughout the Bible and throughout the Old Testament. All the way back at the beginning in Genesis 12 when God called Abraham. He said, Abraham, through one of your offspring, every family, every nation of the earth will be blessed. So, so even back in Genesis, there's a seed that the good news isn't just for a small group, it's for everyone. We saw this at the end of Jonah. God said to Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? God is saying, those 120,000 people, they are made in my image. They, they bear my mark, but they don't know their right hand from their left. That they are as lost, they are as blind as can be. And I have compassion and love and pity for them. Even though they're not part of Israel, I still love them. And so, and so I think the Old Testament saints had a sense of the mission of God. They knew that, you know, God's salvation wasn't just for them. But, you know, on that side of the cross, not knowing the full plan of redemption history, they, they just couldn't articulate it fully. And so I think the, the gospel in the Old Testament was a come and see gospel. It was a, you know, come to Jerusalem, see our magnificent temple. Or come see where we keep the Ark of the Covenant. See how the presence of God is located here with us. Or, you know, come to Israel, see how God is blessing us through all of these great kings. Now, Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. And so... This might not be the best analogy, but it's kind of like that light that you put up in your backyard to attract the bugs to it. I think the Old Testament gospel was a, a centripetal coming from the outside in moving towards a single central point. It was a come and see gospel. 
But when you get to the New Testament, everything changes. With the full plan of redemptive history, knowing that God was going to come to this earth, that he would die for us and that he would resurrect, that changes everything. We have the full gospel now, and Jesus sends us out. The gospel now becomes a go-and-tell gospel. Jesus commanded us, go, therefore, and make disciples. Paul said in Romans 10 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they have never believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear unless someone is preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? For it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And when you get to the end of the Bible, when you get to the last book, to Revelation, we see in Revelation 7 the culmination of all of redemptive history. And John is in the throne room of heaven. And he writes, Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every tongue, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to the Lord who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Which gets me excited for so many reasons, but only one of which is that at the climax of God's redemptive history, when the work was completed... John went out of his way to point out who will be there. People from every nation, every tribe, every language, every tongue. And the only way that people from every nation can be there is if the gospel has extended to the ends of the earth. It is only as if the Great Commission has been completed. If people have gone out on mission to share the gospel with those who do not know it. The missionary force behind the New Testament is just incredible. In fact, without the missionary force, the New Testament itself does not exist. So so in the Old Testament, they had a a come and see gospel, a gospel that came from the outside in. In the New Testament, that, that gets reversed, and we have a go and tell gospel. Start here, and then work your way out going to the ends of the earth. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean for you individually? And what does it mean for us as a church? On an individual level, I hope that as we study Acts over these next few months, I hope that many of you realize that the Lord might be calling you to become missionaries. I think I would go so far as to even say, I hope he calls most of you to be missionaries. Um, a lot of people sometimes will say, you know, I I just don't feel called to go. And and I try and be as gentle and and as respectful as I can, but honestly, that is a very odd way for a Christian to feel. It's not like Christ calls you to himself, and then you have to wait for this second, more spiritual missionary call. When God called you to himself, he called you to his mission. The mission is our default That is our normal, standard operating procedure. Those are our marching orders. That is the mindset and the motivation that we should have. We should be uncomfortable that I'm preaching for so long. Just let me go. That should be our M.O. So I pray that the Lord would open our eyes. 
to the billions of people in this world who do not know his name. That we would be moved to have compassion and pity for them, that we would want to see them come to know the Lord. So this might sound a little weird, but I hope that in five years a lot of you aren't here. It's not because I don't like you. I love all of you. But I don't want you to be here because I want you to find where you fit into God's mission and to go to an area of greater gospel need. What about us as a church? How do we respond to this? A few weeks ago, I preached on Matthew 28, the Great Commission, just as a setup to our study of Jonah and then uh, for our study of Acts. And the first half of that, we looked at the Great Commission itself. And the second half, we looked at how did the disciples respond to the Great Commission. And in response to Jesus' call to go and make disciples, it started with personal evangelism, that kind of frontier missions work we were just talking about. But then that personal evangelism reached its fulfillment and its culmination in planting churches. The disciples sought not only to replicate themselves individually through converts, they sought to replicate themselves institutionally through congregations. And, and, you know, just one of the many reasons that they did that is because as they were going out on mission and as they were seeing people come to faith, they wanted those new believers to have a spiritual home. They didn't want them to be left out on their own with, with no guidance, no protection, no instruction, no community. And so for the sake of seeing the gospel break into new territory and for the sake of having new believers uh, have a safe place to grow, we as a church have committed ourselves to church planting. We've committed ourselves to these two forms of missions that we see in Acts. You can either be a goer or you can be a sender. You can be a goer, someone who is out on the front lines, who is doing battle every single day, trying to defend the faith, give an explanation for your faith, help people to see the beauty and the glory and the love of Jesus. Or you can be a sender. Someone who steps back a little bit, you're still a goer, but you step back a little bit and you prepare and you equip and you instruct and you support and you serve as a lifeline through the church for those who are going out. Those are our two options. An option that Jesus did not leave us with was to sit on the sideline and do nothing. You're either a goer or a sender or a disobeyer. And so I'd ask you to consider what God might be calling you to. Maybe he's calling you to join Redemption Castle Rock, to help join the church plant down there, to see uh, an area of great gospel need, to have a healthy church, to see people come to know the Lord, to see the gospel expand beyond our own little corner of the world. Maybe you feel called to stay here at Redemption Parker to continue to build a healthy church that is going to then turn around and continue to plant more and more healthy churches. Or maybe you consider that the Lord actually is calling you to the mission field to see that there are billions that do not know his name. And maybe you will come before the Lord and that you will lay your life down in the form of a blank check and say, Lord, write on it what you will. I've got nothing left. My life is yours. Whatever best serves your mission, whatever will most uh, help people come to know you, whatever will bring you the most glory, that's what I want to do.
Just help me to be obedient to your mission. So towards that end, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for who you are and for what you have done for us through Jesus Christ in calling us to yourself and then sending us out to get to join you and to be a part of your mission. I ask that by your spirit that you would continue to preach a better sermon than I just did, continue to work in our hearts. Help us to see Jesus, help us to savor Jesus, help us to love him and to love and embrace the mission that he has called us to. And Lord, would you have your way with us? Would your will be done in our lives and in our church? Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.